Good morning. It's Friday, the 29th of September, and this is Govindraj Aitiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes of the day: India's housing markets continue to boom, growing faster than ever, even as stock markets turn weak. More and more GST inspectors are landing up at businesses and factories. Who is at fault? Sugar stocks and prices rise as companies position themselves as energy majors. Indian roads are best for destructive testing. Asian Paints co-founder Ashwin Dani passes, and so does M S Swaminathan, best known as the father of India's green revolution. This is a call report with Govindraj Atiraj. The big numbers. India's current account deficit widened sequentially to 9.2 billion dollars in the quarter ended June 2023 or 1.1% of India's gross domestic product or GDP compared to 1.3 billion in the fourth quarter of 2223 that's 0.2% of GDP so the current account deficit was around 18 billion dollars or 2.1% of GDP in the year ago period The quarter on quarter increase in current account deficit was on account of higher trade deficit coupled with a lower surplus in net services and a decline in private transfer receipts said the Reserve Bank of India in a statement. Now what that is I will explain in a moment. Falling remittances both quarter on quarter and year on year is worrisome and bears watching more so because of slowing global growth DK Joshi chief economist at Crisil said last evening. According to him this can have a bearing on current account deficit which was anyway expected to rise sequentially in the first quarter of this fiscal because of a higher merchandise trade deficit and a softening of service trade surplus rising oil prices will weigh further he said adding that together these have put an upside pressure on crystal's estimate of current account deficit for this fiscal which stands at 1.8% of gdp Speaking of oil, Saudi Arabia and Russia have raked in billions of dollars in extra oil revenues in recent months despite pumping fewer barrels after their production cuts sent crude prices up the Wall Street Journal is reporting. Oil revenues in Saudi Arabia this quarter are likely up by about 30 million dollars a day compared with the April June period or an increase of about 5.7%. Analysis by Energy Aspects shows according to the WSJ. Now for the 3 month period this would equate to about 2.6 billion dollars. Russian oil revenues are likely up by about 2.8 billion dollars Wall Street Journal quoted data saying back home rising crude prices among other factors weighed on stock prices in the bosses the BSE Sensex fell 610 points to 65508 and the Nifty was down 193 points to 19524 stock prices are down but housing prices are staying strong and how The third quarter housing sales are at an all-time high with 120,000 units sold in the top 7 cities up 36% year on year housing real estate consulting firm Anarok has said the monsoon quarter is usually slow but not this time remember we discussed earlier this week how india's savings levels have fallen to decadal lows and this is something that's being debated elsewhere too possibly this is one reason Average residential property prices across the top 7 cities collectively registered a double digit yearly growth of 11% that's from around 6105 rupees per square feet to about 6800 rupees per square feet in the third quarter of the current year now remember that this is an average mumbai is way ahead of this 
Hyderabad recorded about an 18% annual growth followed by Bangalore with about 14%. In terms of total units sold, Mumbai led the pack with about 38,500 units sold, followed by Pune at about 22,880. The western cities were about half of total sales of these seven cities in the country. And there's more supply as well, though I cannot imagine how. Some 116,000 new units came into the market, which in itself was up 24%. Mumbai again led the race with 36,250 units launched in this quarter, followed by Hyderabad at 24,900. The supply of luxury units is rising, as we've been mentioning earlier as well, now holding a share of 27%, highest in five years, while affordable housing has dropped, as again we've discussed in the past, to its lowest of 18%. The total inventory of houses is down 3% to about 610,000 units. So if you are looking for a house somewhere or anywhere in the country, it's quite likely you'll find it. At what price, of course, is a completely different story. Goods and service tax rates are increasing. In the last three months, at least three listed companies have seen tax authorities, specifically representing the Goods and Services Tax Department, land up at their premises. Of these three companies, Pratap Snacks and Chalet Hotels saw their stock prices fall in reaction, while SRF, the Indian chemicals major, did not. Last week, casino company Delta Corp was served with an over 16,000 crore rupee notice for GST and the move sent its stock price plummeting. Other non-listed companies, including an edtech company, often in the news for various announcements, was also visited. Insurance companies, both private and public, have been getting hefty notices, running once again, sometimes into thousands of crores of rupees each. The gaming companies are facing a close to 50,000 crore or $6 billion demand. So why the flurry of notices? Is it because knowingly or unknowingly more companies are not managing their tax accounting well, Or is it just that the tax department is getting more aggressive and the slightest infraction invites a sledgehammer response? I spoke with well-known indirect tax expert Rohit Jain, partner at the Mumbai headquartered Economics Laws Practice or ELP, and I began by asking him precisely that. Why are we seeing so many direct visits to the premises of companies? What you read in the newspaper that there have been searches by GST authorities is the only reason at this point in time is the time-barring assessments. First year of GST implementation, which is 1718, is likely to get time barred soon. And therefore, it is important for the GST authorities to start the assessment process. So, what we can see today is all the first year of assessments are being done by GST authorities. Second important trend that I see is that the industry wide issue. Because once the GST authorities looked at it in one of the instances, the assessments and the inquiry and collate the data and they identify some of the issues there. They are applying this across the industry. And that's why you would see that be it insurance sector, be it online gaming sector, be it on some of these all sort of transactions in manufacturing on the damages and all. You would see that once you have a one industry-wide issue being picked up, the GST authorities are now applying that across the players in the same sector and trying to collate and get into that sort of an issue. And third, most important thing, unlike in the erstwhile era, GST authorities have got actually more data. Every day the returns have been filed online, the invoices have been generated online, and GST authorities are using all the AI tools effectively to mine those data 
and identify the issues and effectively started looking at the inquiries. So all of this have culminated together where you would see there have been a lot of inquiries by the GST authorities. Right. So can you explain the time-barred assessment a little more? And does this mean that if it's 17-18 that you talked about, so the next round will be 18-19 and so on? So what is happening that we have a five years time outer limit to complete the assessment. Beyond five years, it becomes a time-barred. More importantly, because of COVID, there have been extension by the Supreme Court order for two years. And in a normal period, they would have to complete the assessment within three years. In an extended period, they can go up to five years. Now, therefore, three years plus two years of extension of Supreme Court because of COVID becoming five years. So, March 18 returns would have been filed sometime in September to December 18. December 18 to December 23 becomes a five years where they have to complete the first year of assessment. That is the reason where they are now getting into the time-barring pressure for the normal period. But once they start the assessment going, and if they start for 17-18, they are actually taking up all the five years thereafter as well. Because it is not necessary that they like to complete one after the other assessments. They can do all the four or five years assessment together. Okay. You talked about industry-wide. Now, is it that then some companies will get disproportionately penalized because of one bad egg? That's one. Secondly, in some of the cases that I talked about, particularly those listed companies, these were searches, as in the GST authorities landed up at the premises of the company. So does that mean that they've gone through a prior process in terms of you know, warning them, alerting them, and then maybe they didn't respond, which is why this happened? Or is it that the GST authorities will land up regardless? No, I don't think they need to warn up before they go to for search. That's not the process. They can land straight with the search warrant and they can go. So there are, could be three reasons going that they had done the search. One, they would have got some data which has been suspicious in terms of their data analysis. And therefore, they didn't want to warn them. They still landed at the doorsteps of the company and started doing the search. Second could be they have got the link. So one of the things that you had seen in all those fake invoicing cases, where there has been chain of suppliers who have been raising invoices. So if they get a link from one supplier, they could easily trace in the GST network that ultimately this supplier has supplied goods to whom they are in turn supplied to whom. And therefore, it is easy for them to track the entire link of suppliers. And they would have got that information. That's why they have straight landed in relation to that. Third could be, as I said, the industry-wide issues where they have started getting that interpretational issue, like what we have seen in recent past is online gaming. So once they have got some issue in Gamescraft case, they are applying across all the online gaming entities. And to collect the data, different GST authorities are state landing at the company's premises. So for those who run enterprises, small and large, or in charge of their accounting, what would you recommend? What are the slip-ups that people should ensure that they don't do so as to ensure that no one lands up at their doorstep? I would put it three points of caution, which is very critical. One is GST law is, of course, has been evolving. There have been more than 1,000 amendments plus judgments which have come through since implementation of GST. And therefore, it is important for the businesses, particularly small and medium sector businesses, to keep updated in terms of the changes in the GST regulation. Second point of caution, 
I would believe that don't go by the erstwhile regulation. We used to do this in VAT, we used to do this in excise regime or we used to do this in service tax. May not hold good under the GST law. GST law has its own nuances. GST law is own set of provisions that one needs to really comply with. And third, which is the most critical point of caution is that be consistent. Income tax we say something else, GST we say something else, other sector specific regulation we say something else. That won't get along well. All the regulators are completely synchronized. The data has been shared amongst the regulators and therefore be consistent in your position, be consistent in your practice and therefore don't do any hanky-wanky stuff in relation to any of these activities is what three points of caution I would like to give. That's very useful, Rohit. Thank you so much for that. And last question. So you did mention Gamescraft and the online gaming industry facing pretty large, running into tens of thousands of crores. What's your reading of that right now? I believe that GST authorities have been more aggressive. Ideally, they have already amended the law prospectively from October 1st, 2023. GST Council should take a view that even if it was an interpretational issue, they would give up and tax it going forward. Why don't they penalize such a large taxes which have not been collected? It is beyond their even revenue and turnover. The tax demands have been come through. I don't think so. This is what industry is looking at it. Even on the interpretation of the provisions, we believe that the industry has a very strong case. Right. Roy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Sugar prices are rising and sugar companies are becoming energy companies. Are sugar companies now being rated as energy companies? Well, okay, before I come to that, sugar prices and sugar stocks on the bosses have been rallying. The first is obviously a matter of concern. The second, a matter of relief, if not happiness, I would reckon. A persistent monsoon deficit in key sugarcane producing states is said to be keeping sugar prices high, closer to 40 to 45 rupees a kg across the country. The sugar quota for September is at 2.5 million tons, more than 6% over the quota for the corresponding month in the previous year. So the way it works is that the government allocates a monthly sales quota to every sugar mill in the country because sugar is a regulated industry. India consumes around 27 million tons of sugar, though only 10% or so is consumed in households and the rest commercially. Meanwhile, sugar companies are increasingly making more ethanol. And the Indian government has also set a target of blending 20% of ethanol with petrol by 2025 as part of its biofuels focus. Ethanol is made from molasses, a residue from crushing sugarcane. A sugar mill produces both sugar and ethanol and can vary the mix. This can also be done with grain. So to understand what is happening with sugar prices, sugar stocks and the new energy focus, I reached out to Atul Chaturvedi, chairman of Sri Renuka Sugars, and began by asking him, of course, why prices were rising. Sugar stocks at the end of the season, this is the back end of the season, sugar stocks are bound to come off a bit. In fact, if you really look at our numbers, in the last two years, India has exported close to about 17 million tons plus in the last two seasons. So obviously, whatever stock overhang India used to have is no longer there. And that stock overhang was the one which was actually keeping a lid on the domestic sugar prices in the past. And my take is that the sugar prices in the country have not really risen. They've maybe marginally gone up. And I would go to the extent of saying 
that it's nothing but the carrying cost of the sugar from the crushing season to this period, which is getting reflected in the values. And sugar prices in the country do not have a potential to go up for the simple reason that sugar as a sector it is highly regulated. So I don't think Indian sugar values are going to go anywhere. But the stock prices of all sugar companies seem to be going through the roof. So why is that then? Not to pin you down on a stock question, but I'm just wondering. In sugar stocks had been down for a very long time. Now sugar is back in reckoning and sugar is a green energy. In fact, I keep on saying that sugar is no longer a sugar sector. It's actually an energy sector. And with green energy, I think the investors are lapping it up for the simple reason that it's uh, ethanol is green energy. And sugar is part of a circular economy. Right. So tell us about ethanol. So we have a biofuels policy in the country. We have a target of blending up to 20% in petrol. I know it's happening in some parts of the country and or up to a certain volume. So where do we stand right now and what is the contribution of the industry at this point? Now, as far as the sugar sector is concerned, the ecosystem is very much in place. And this year, the target of blending was about 12%. As a matter of fact, in the sugar producing states, this 12% blending is more or less already there. But on an all-India basis, the blending would be close to about 11.72 or 73, something like that. But I think there's no reason why India should not be in a position to have 20% blending by 2025. Only hiccup to me looks as if grain ethanol may not reach the targeted levels of about 4.6 billion liters by 2025. So probably sugar sector will have to chip in for the extra ethanol which is required to achieve 20% blending. And I think sugar sector is very much ready for that. So if you take an average sugar company, what is the sugar production and what is the ethanol production and how has that changed in recent years? I can't comment on the overall sugar companies, but as far as we are concerned, we have two revenue streams. One is the refineries, which are largely export focused. But if you look at our crushing facilities, I would say our contribution from ethanol could be as high as 40%, 35 to 40%. Of revenue? Yep. And on the other side, if in terms of sugarcane consumed, what is the split between the amount of sugarcane that's used to produce sugar and how much to produce this thing? I mean, it's a pass-through. How does it work? As far as our crush is concerned, say, for example, if you crush about 6 million tons of cane, the sugar sacrificed for ethanol in our company would be closer to about 250,000 tons. Okay, so you're saying that most of the sugarcane is actually creating sugar and not ethanol. Look, during the season time, when the crushing season is on, then ethanol production is much higher because you're making from juice. Once the season is over, then the production actually comes down because then you're making it only out of molasses, which are actually stored. So season time, November, December, January, February, you will find ethanol production going up and then subsequently petering down. So most sugar factories start crushing now, right? Around October? November? Normally, it used to be October, but this year seems to be an Adik mask kind of a year. And uh, probably because the crushing would start post Dashera, which means last week of October or maybe early November. And this year, sugar crushing in Karnataka and Maharashtra will definitely be a bit of a challenge because cane production seems to be affected big time. Because for a change, rain gods have not been Indian. 
and Maharashtra and Karnataka have suffered because of rains. Right. And to go back to my first question, really, which is more to do with prices, you feel that while there is obviously some shortfall, at least in the, at the time at which the sugarcane arrives at the factory, prices are still not being affected by all of this or as such. So I think India still has adequate sugarware, absolutely no issue whatsoever on that front. So we should be quite comfortable and the sugar season is just maybe in about 5-10 days time. And as far as the crushing new season is concerned, so once we start crushing the sugar prices, whatever have gone up, will probably come back to normal. Absolutely. And it's only a one-month period. That's about it. So the hiccup in prices, I don't see happening too much. Right. And you feel that we don't need to change our export mix at this point of time, like we are doing with some other commodities? No, I am not too sure whether India would be exporting sugar this year. For the simple reason that food inflation is becoming a dirty word. And the elections around the corner, I'm not too sure. I would feel that the decision makers would probably err on the side of caution. So India is an export country for the next few months. It's not going to be relevant. And you feel this is likely to happen because there is no move right now? No, at the moment, sugar exports are not there because there's no quota for exports allowed at this point of time. And I don't see that happening in the next three, four, five months. Right. Mr. Chaturvedi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. India, the best roads for destructive testing. Electric car major Tesla wants to set up a destructive testing facility for specific components and testing tracks for all vehicles in the country, Money Control is reporting. This appears to suggest that India has the best roads not to drive, but to bash any car or vehicle to a point where it becomes clear that if it can survive here, then it can survive in any other extreme environment anywhere in the world. Tesla has proposed to set up innovation and destructive testing hubs for specific components in India. India has the largest variety of roads. If Tesla conducts destructive testing in India, the company can roll out its cars anywhere in the world. Tesla has discussed this with Indian government officials and has been asking for some benefits, which we are considering, an official told Money Control. Destructive testing is a method of destroying a component or material to analyze its point of failure. In this technique, a component is subjected to different destructive methods to deform it completely. Its flexibility and strength are then assessed to understand how that material performs under pressure. Exactly what many of our cars go through every day in many parts of the country and Mumbai for sure. India has many official testing tracks too, like the National Automotive Test Tracks, the High Speed Track, the Multi-Friction Braking Track, the Gradient Track, the Fatigue Track, among others Money Control has pointed out. None of these tracks, I would wager, would come even close to the stress test, like I said, of driving, say, over the potholes of Mumbai City on any given day. Ashwin Dhani, the former chairman of Asian Paints, is no more. Ashwin Dhani, part of the promoter family of Asian Paints and earlier chairman of the company, passed away in Mumbai yesterday. He was 79. He ran the company as vice chairman and managing director between 1998 and 2009, having taken over following an acrimonious battle with Atul Choksi, who was earlier managing director. Dhani joined Asian Paints in 1968, which was founded by his father and three others in 1942. Like most Asian Paints family members, he too studied chemical engineering or chemical technology, both from India and overseas. Apart from business, Ashwin was a yoga practitioner and had an interest in collecting art. Dani could be quite forthright and outspoken. 
I once asked him about a recently departed director and senior professional of the company and he quite bluntly said it was just as well that he the director concerned left and that we were happy to see him go. Asian Paints is one of those rarer companies in India where a founder family has successfully brought in high caliber professional managers to run the company at various points and balance their own ambitions and desires to put the company's success above all thus staying away to a large extent. Asian Paints is also considered one of the better or the best performing companies and stocks on Indian bourses and has held its dominance in the markets for decades despite being continually challenged. Here is an extract from an interview in what quite likely is amongst his last public appearances at a CNBC TV18 awards function earlier this year. I have been uh, with the paint industry for almost 55 years and uh, I eat paints i drink paints i drink paints uh, i've spent my whole life around coating coatings and coatings and ever since i graduated from udct with paint technology you know i've uh, devoted my whole life to paint paints and paints paint has always been a competitive business before 20 years 30 years 40 years 50 years and when we became the leader in 68 other than us remaining five or six paint companies were all of foreign origin british paint company mostly so we have seen paint to be a competitive business and still we kept on marching by innovation innovation in both technology and business processes and what not so i think with customer centricity being our main concentration i think we will keep on marching and fortunately paint market is also growing with the increased growth of the residential and office buildings both coming up in a big way all over the country we have to concentrate uh, with respect to customer centricity and customer is the king and as long as we keep on concentrating on customer centricity we will always succeed that is all i would say india also lost a famed agricultural scientist ms swaminathan and best known as the father of india's green revolution He passed away at his residence in Chennai at the age of 98. Swaminathan was awarded the first World Food Prize in 1987, following which he set up the MS Swaminathan Research Foundation in Chennai. On that note, that's it from me and my colleagues at the Core Report. Do log into www.thecore.in, check out our newsletter and our website. Do send in your feedback to govindraj@thecore.in. Have a great day and a great weekend too. This was the core report with me Govind Raj Athiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you. including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector write to us at feedback@thecore.in at thank you for listening